Welcome back, warriors. Tansei Sego Anibuju. Quay Ninda Louisi Pampometer. And I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also very much about asserting, living, and defending our native sovereignty all over Turtle Island. Now, I want to give a brief warning about today's show so that people who feel that they might be triggered or upset by it can choose to skip this one. Today's show is about the National Inquiry on Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women. It has some difficult subject matter related to sexualized violence, and those with lived experience may find that very upsetting. What I want to do with this show is really honor the warriors in our nations. And today, I want to specifically acknowledge the warriors who made this national inquiry into murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls possible. It was the voices of Indigenous women and girls, the families of the lost loved ones and survivors, Indigenous women experts and advocates, together with all of our human rights allies, that made this inquiry possible. It was their strength, courage, and conviction to seek justice for their lost loved ones that forced Canada to finally have a national inquiry. For decades, Indigenous women and girls tried to get governments in Canada to address the exceptionally high rates of race and sex-based violence against Indigenous women and girls, all to no avail. For anyone listening from outside of Canada, What I'm talking about is Canada's National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. They just released their final report on Monday, June the 3rd. In Canada, Indigenous women and girls have long been targeted for sexualized violence by all members of society and even state actors like police officers, judges, teachers, and social workers. Those who are tasked with helping Indigenous women and girls have often been the perpetrators. The current estimates of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls are around 4,000, but there is no way to determine the real numbers as so many went unreported for so many decades. We know that Indigenous people represent 5% of the total Indigenous population in Canada, and of course Indigenous women and girls are about half of that. Yet, they are grossly overrepresented in those that are murdered or go missing. In fact, the better term for that is those who are disappeared, because it's not like these women and girls just wandered off and got lost. These are women and girls who have been the subject of primarily male violence, who disappear them to cover up their crimes. According to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police report, which only looked at a couple of decades and only about 1,200 specific cases, they found that murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls represent about 16% of all women who go murdered and missing in Canada. A gross overrepresentation. But that's the national number. If you look at the provincial rates, that's much higher. In Manitoba, Indigenous women and girls represent 49%, and in Saskatchewan, it's 55%. We know that Native women are 
four times more likely to be killed than a Canadian woman. They're seven times more likely to be targeted by serial killers because serial killers know they can do it and get away with it. However, it's very important to remember that serial killers are only a small fraction of the killers of Native women. Contrary to racist allegations made by both police and government officials, we know from the statistics that Indigenous women and girls are less likely to be killed by their spouse than Canadian women. And that's an important point. The Toronto, Invest Toronto Star investigation also showed that the majority of killers of Indigenous women and girls were not known to their victims. All of this countered former statements by police officers and government officials. We also know that 50% of all women and girls are targeted by human traffickers. We know that they do this because of the high degree of impunity. Indigenous women and girls are targeted for sexual exploitation by human traffickers, those involved in child porn rings, by foster parents, as well as police officers, judges, corrections officers, otherwise known as prison guards, and many other state-based officials. And why? Well, it's because they can do so with a high degree of impunity. Indigenous women and girls have been targeted since contact for sexual exploitation and treated as though they were less than human, that their lives were not worthy, that they were not sovereign over their own bodies. Long before it was an issue in the media, individuals and organizations advocated both here in Canada and at the United Nations for an inquiry. Not only for an inquiry, but to include an inquiry that would reveal the systematic forces that create, perpetuate, and amplify this crisis. Former Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper literally told the world that there would be no national inquiry because, and I quote, it isn't really high on our radar, to be honest. Now imagine the impact on society when Canada's own Prime Minister denies that there's a crisis, it basically says there's no problem here, move along. It gets even worse when the former Minister of Indian Affairs, Bernard Valcour, told society that, oh, there's no problem here, the problem, if any, is with Native men. And he tried to argue that 70% of all of the killers were Native men a number that was never supported in any of the evidence or statistics. He also went on to blame a lack of respect for Native women by Native men and told First Nations leaders that it's them who have to address the issue. The inherent racism and sexism in the former conservative governments act like a toxin and spread throughout society. And it's not just limited to conservative governments. All governments, municipal, federal, provincial, since contact, have held similar views. It's just some governments were more overt about it. But telling society, don't worry, there's no crisis here. And even if there is a problem, uh, that's between Native peoples. That's nothing for us to worry about, is one of the most direct and blatant forms of othering that somehow other people, those people, 
are less worthy of our concern, less worthy of human rights, less worthy of the right to life. Indigenous women and girls and their families and communities and allies persisted anyway. These were huge challenges, but they persisted. Non-government organizations which represented women's rights, human rights, indigenous rights, anti-homelessness, anti-poverty, all of those kinds of like-minded NGOs all banded together to keep the pressure on foreign inquiry, both here in Canada and at the United Nations human rights treaty bodies. And those international human rights treaty bodies called out Canada for its grave human rights violations of Indigenous women and girls, specifically in relation to the murdered and missing. They recommended an inquiry. If you look at the TRC report, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada did its own inquiry about the residential schools and all of the murders and tortures and physical abuse and sexual abuse and everything that occurred in those schools, the thousands and thousands of deaths of Native children. And what was their call to action? Their call to action number four was to call for a national inquiry into murder to missing Indigenous women. Literally every week there is a new case of Native women and girls going murdered or missing. But the media started to pick up on these cases. Tina Fontaine, Renelle Harper, Cindy Gladue, and many, many others. And the public started to put pressure on the government. So the Liberal government campaigned on having a national inquiry, and it kept its promise. When they were elected, they established the national inquiry that included federal, provincial, and territorial governments. It was headed by a First Nations lawyer and former justice, Marion Buller. And over three years, they heard from 2,380 people, including family members, survivors, leaders, frontline workers, elders, and expert witnesses. And it was on June 3rd, just this past Monday, that they released their final report, which contains two volumes and a supplementary report. What was their primary conclusion about the high rates of sexualized violence against Native women and girls? They found that it was race-based genocide that particularly targets Indigenous women and girls. And I'm going to quote from a part of their executive summary. It says, This genocide has been empowered by colonial structures, evidenced notably by the Indian Act, the 60s Scoop, residential schools, and breaches of human and Inuit Métis and First Nation rights, leading directly to the current increased rates of violence, death, and suicide in Indigenous populations. They also did a separate report specifically on genocide and how they came to the conclusion that it is in fact genocide in law. And I think that's worth repeating. The current crisis of murdered, missing Indigenous women and girls is a genocide committed by Canadian governments. And it was very important for them to conclude it was genocide. The truth of Canada's past and present actions which target Indigenous women and girls must be known by Canadians. It is the only way to spark outrage at what has been and continues to be done. 
We need enough outrage to force emergency national action to address it. And up until now, there hasn't been any collective outrage. There's been no collective call and pushing of politicians for action. We've had our allies and we've had different groups over Canada join us in this call. But I'm talking about a nationwide call by Canadians that enough is enough. And that's why the finding of genocide is important. It changes everything. It shows that this is not about us. This is about Canada. The violation of our rights is not on us. It's on Canada. The unfortunate part of what has happened over the last few days since the release of the final report is that there are literally hundreds of armchair analysts taking to social media who deny that it's a genocide, who feign shock that anyone could use such a word as genocide outside of the Holocaust. Even media commentators, journalists, and writers, some of them without any experience in genocide, profess to know what genocide is and isn't. This contributes to misinformation and miseducation of the Canadian public, and they all have the ability to know better and do better. There needs to be a higher degree of integrity in the media. The problem is, most people don't know what genocide is, and that should be the first point of education. Popular knowledge uh, says that genocide is the mass killing of millions of people in a really short time. And while that's the most obvious or known example, it's not the only form of genocide. And if there is one thing I can impart today in this podcast, is what is the legal definition of genocide? And where can you find it and read it yourself? Well, it's contained in the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which was in fact ratified by Canada. Article 2 says, and I quote, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And they include five criteria, of which Canada only needs to be guilty of one. So number A, or letter A, is killing members of the group. B, causing serious bodily or mentally harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And like I said, Canada need only be guilty of one of those five. Yet Canada is guilty of all of them. Article 3 speaks to which acts are punishable. The act of genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, the attempt to commit genocide, or complicity in genocide. And that's very important to understand. So Canada attempting genocide and not being successful is a crime punishable the same as genocide. So is complicity in genocide. Article 4 says, 
persons committing genocide or any other acts provided in Article 3 shall be punished, whether they are constitutionally responsible rulers, public officials, or private individuals. That is also important to know. After hearing from thousands of witnesses, experts, and others, and after conducting their own independent research and analysis, the National Inquiry made a legal finding of fact. Canada is guilty of genocide. It's not up for debate now. That is the legal finding. In fact, I'm quite shocked that there would be so much debate over this finding. It's not like it's new. If you'll recall, the Truth and Reconciliation Report made a similar conclusion. And in case anyone can't find it, it's on the first paragraph of the first page of the introduction of the Executive Summary of the Truth and Reconciliation Report. And this is a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth reading. And it says, For over a century, the central goals of Canada's Aboriginal policy were to eliminate Aboriginal governments, ignore Aboriginal rights, terminate the treaties, and through a process of assimilation, cause Aboriginal peoples to cease to exist as distinct legal, social, cultural, religious, and racial entities in Canada. The establishment and operation of residential schools were a central element of this policy, which can be best described as cultural genocide. Physical genocide is the mass killing of the members of a targeted group, and biological genocide is the destruction of the group's reproductive capacity. In its dealings with Aboriginal peoples, Canada did all of these things. So this isn't the first time that an inquiry has concluded that Canada was guilty of genocide. However, it features very prominently in the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women. We need to accept it and move on to the 231 calls for justice, which focus on the fundamental human rights for Indigenous women and girls. We need to move forward with a comprehensive and coordinated national action plan led first and foremost by Indigenous women and girls to make these fundamental changes to Canada's laws, policies, and practices to end the genocide. Because here's the other really important thing, that we're not talking about a historic genocide that ended and we're looking for accountability. We're talking about a historic genocide that has continued into present day. It hasn't ended, and the lives and well-being and safety of Indigenous women and girls are still very much at risk. This should be considered a public safety crisis, a national security crisis, and dealt with on a national emergency basis. We should be hauling together federal, provincial, territorial, municipal, and Indigenous governments led by Indigenous women to come up with an emergency action plan. I also request that everyone who has the ability to read this report should read it. It's available online, and if you don't have your own computer, it's available online in libraries across the country. My recommendation would be to start first with the supplementary report on genocide. It's very small, but you need to understand why and how this is genocide in Canada before you can understand the rest of the report. 
Then I would suggest move to the calls to justice. Be familiar with them. Those two are relatively short in nature. You should be able to do that within a day or two. Then you can move on to the much longer volumes. And what I'll do is I will link the supplementary report on genocide and the calls to justice in my podcast information so that you can access it easier. Then, once you've done some reading, let's get back together on this podcast and talk about the recommendations in more detail and where we go from here. I know today's episode was a tough one. My hope, though, is that the more we talk about this, the more we can help educate one another because education always inspires action and ultimately, that is what we need now concrete action. We don't need any reinvestigations. We don't need any academic debates. And we certainly don't need a debate in the media. We need emergency action. Thank you all for tuning into my show. Please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And make sure to leave me your show ideas in the comments section. You can also follow me on Instagram as Pam underscore Palmeter as I talk about warrior living. And you can also subscribe to my videos on YouTube where I tackle the difficult political and legal issues facing Indigenous peoples. I also sometimes follow up on my blog, Indigenous Nationhood, with the text of these shows for you to read if you wanted to have a print copy. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. Well,